the impacts of not making any adjustment to how our waste products reach the environment and how they impact the environment is absolutely critical to our short, medium and long-term health, well-being and survival. Hello and welcome back to the Plastic, the Last Straw podcast, the series where we're exploring the problem with plastics as we hear from the experts in the field, as well as the individuals and organisations trying to make a difference. Along the way, we will be highlighting the unique challenges, innovations and opportunities surrounding plastic pollution. Plastic, the Last Straw is produced by TuneFM at the University of New England in partnership with the Environmental Protection Authority of New South Wales. We would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on Anawan land and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. In this episode, we're giving you a front row seat in the battle of plastic versus the planet as we hear from experts at Ocean Watch Australia, the University of New England and Flinders University about how Australia's unique environment is faring in the fight against plastic pollution. When the topic of plastic pollution is raised, Australia may not be one of the first countries called to mind, but beneath the veneer of stunning landscapes and seemingly pristine beaches, the Australian environment is suffering. In New South Wales alone, we produce around 800,000 tonnes of plastics each year, with only 10% of it actually being recycled. From what we've learned in episode one, we know what an issue it is to continuously manufacture a harmful product that we can't effectively dispose of and which lingers in the environment for a very long time. One of the big issues with plastic pollution is how layered and far-reaching its consequences are, extending beyond the immediate and highly visible issues of litter and plastic items to nanoplastics, microplastics and plastic-associated chemicals. Often, when the extent of a problem is difficult to perceive, it's easy to minimise our idea of its risks and then relax our approach to its management. So, when the plastics problem is less visible, Where is it in our environment? How are we studying it? And what exactly is it doing once it gets there? We recently heard from Nicola Forster, a PhD student from the University of New England, studying microplastics in conservation and wilderness areas around New South Wales. PhD is looking at microplastics from outdoor recreation on soil systems in mainly in conservation and wilderness areas. So part of that is looking at the numbers and types of microplastics that we can find on trails. Another component is looking at some of the key transport mechanisms and looking at how microplastics can end up once they're in the environment. So do they stay on the trail or do they go into like adjacent vegetation or further afield into waterways? And then another component of that is looking at some of the long-term impacts from rubber abrasion from footwear and specifically looking at some of the impacts of degradation and what impact that can have as well. So for example, rubber particles that are exposed to more sunlight and heat, if they're on the trail or in a warmer climate or on rock, for example, they can degrade more quickly. And that means that all of the additives can leach out more quickly and you know the impact on the soil environment can be more severe. Microplastics, it just describes such a diverse suite of particles. And you know, even when we think about nanoplastics versus microplastics, nanoplastics and that that small size fraction of microplastics, so say anything under like 10 to 20 microns, those particles tend to have 
they're more biologically relevant, so they can have more severe impacts on plants and animals and also soil as well, because they can really get into the different pores. And then once we kind of bring in that chemical side as well, it's just so complex. Most of my research is focused on the northern tablelands in New South Wales, specifically around the Jumeric Dam Reserve and uh, Dabal Nature Reserve just near Armadale. And I also did quite a bit of sampling in the Washpool and Gibraltar National Parks, just out of Glen Innes. We took samples from the trail surface using a forensic gel lifter tape. So this involves getting small pieces of tape and just pressing it down on the trail surface. And then we just look at the tape under a microscope and identify some of the different microplastic types and we can measure them as well. And we also took a, a subset of samples and we looked at them under the scanning electron microscope and characterized some of them using a, a relatively new technique called the LDIR, so laser direct infrared spectroscopy. There's a lot of push and technical innovation towards finding new techniques to kind of study microplastics at the moment. We've only very recently become aware of microplastics and the impacts that they can have on the environment. Research is increasing very, very rapidly and the number of papers coming out each year is increasing exponentially. But there's still a lot that we don't know about microplastics, mainly because they're so varied. So different microplastics can have different sizes and different shapes and different polymers and additives in them. And all of those factors can influence the impact that they have on aquatic or soil systems. So yeah, there's still, still a lot of research to be done. When we see how plastics are infiltrating wilderness areas far removed from high-density or urban populations, we can start to realise the extent of the issue. Nicola continued. It looks like atmospheric deposition of microplastics is actually very significant in conservation and wilderness areas. It's actually quite scary to see the numbers. I did a, a small pilot study in Mount Duval, just out of Armadale, and we were getting, you know, very significant numbers of microplastics and particularly microfibers being deposited. So I can only imagine the number of microplastics in areas close to cities, for example. They've found microplastics on Mount Everest, in a whole heap of glaciers in Europe, and Nepal, they're in Antarctica, they're in the bottom of the ocean. Yeah, there's just no getting away from them now. Most people don't really appreciate the impact and the extent of microplastic pollution. And I mean, plastic is ubiquitous in all parts of our society now, and it's really hard to get away from microplastic pollution. It can come from our clothing, from carpet, from shoes, from our cars, from construction. You know, it's just so pervasive in our society and it really requires a lot of effort not to use plastic. One of the issues around microplastic pollution is that people don't think of it because it's it's so small. It's the whole attitude of, oh, you know, it's, a, it's only a tiny little bit. It, it doesn't matter. But, you know, we really need to step away from that and be quite intentional. While there are a lot of areas within the realm of plastics where more research is needed, studies like Nicola's are filling important gaps within our knowledge and could present big opportunities for change given the right reach and support. There's been some limited research on microplastics in national parks and conservation areas around the world, but no one has really specifically looked at microplastics on trails. And there's been so little research done on microplastics from clothing and shoes either. 
And one of the really good things about my research is that it can be transferred quite easily into how we can understand microplastic pollution in urban areas as well, because everyone is wearing clothes and shoes. Public outreach and public education is definitely very important in terms of raising awareness. And then working with business can be quite powerful in terms of actually enacting change. So I think it's quite important to have those relationships with them and find some companies that are quite responsive and willing to make change and then other ones will follow. So outdoor companies, like they tend to be quite environmentally conscious and all of them have policies around recycling and trying to minimise waste and everything. But, you know, a missing component of that is looking at how many microplastics their clothing releases. I think that's such a big gap. And as part of this project, I'm really hoping that we'll encourage them to look into that more. Another study that could point out some concrete pathways for managing plastic pollution was conducted by Janet Klein out of Flinders University in South Australia. Hi, my name is Janet Klein uh, from Flinders University. I did my honours research project looking at microplastics along the South Australian coastline, particularly in the intertidal water and in the organism, the mussel. For our study, we needed to define the region of the water column we were looking at and we were really keen to see the impact of or the presence of microplastics close to the shoreline. So we looked at uh, the water column as intertidal being the one to one metre depth. Microplastics are known to be ubiquitous globally and in significant concentrations in different parts of the world, and yet we hadn't documented the extent of microplastic pollution along the South Australian coastline in that intertidal zone, or let alone determine that they were there. So we were interested, one, to determine they were there, which we very highly suspected, and then, of course, document the distribution of that uh, pollution across the coastline from Sejuna in the west through to Robe in the east. South Australian coastline is perceived to be a pristine marine environment. It's obviously highly beautiful. We're very remote from the rest of the world and Australia. And so it was really important that we establish the presence of microplastics and the extent to which they're there to reduce any impact, obviously, and to understand what reduce and understand the impact that they might be having on our fragile ecosystem. Our study obviously was interested to understand whether they were there. We're also interested to understand how they were there. And so we looked at the varying levels of microplastics across the coastline at 10 different sites, which were randomly selected or identified, I should say, that correlated to varying levels of human population on the coastline. And so we established actually that there was a significant relationship between coastal population and the extent of microplastic pollution in the water. And therefore, we could understand that there's a potential level of control and something we can all do as citizens to reduce that pollution. And obviously it's of concern, appreciating that our low levels of population actually have an impact in our marine environment. There's a lot that we could actually do. And, you know, the marine environment is absolutely fascinating and to understand how we impact it, given it's relatively invisible to us, is critical. We had a mean of 8.21 particles per litre in the water and 3.58 in a muscle, which certainly was a lot higher than we expected for a beautiful, supposedly pristine environment like South Australia. Both is showing on the low to medium end of global concentrations found in parts of the world. There's an extremely high concentration, not fully comparable for it. But for example, in Maldives has been the highest concentration found anywhere globally in sand of 278 particles per kilo of sediment. 
So that's obviously extremely high and we're not that high. However, there are two or three studies looking at sediment down at the depths of the Great Australian Bight and those levels were really high. So we did suspect we'd find them and we weren't too surprised to see that they were on that low to medium end. We found plastic types such as polyamides and polyethylene, polypropylene, acrylics and cellulose, which indicates that much of the microplastic pollution that is coming from our local environment is from short life cycle single-use plastic, as well as synthetic clothing and semi-synthetic clothing, I should add, as well as potentially from the fishing industry, all of which are within our easy grasp of making some change that will reduce that impact on the marine environment. One of the ways Janet identified of reducing the amount of plastic waste in the marine environment is by altering the way we offset grey water. There's a fantastic study which your listeners would love where they looked at actually the discharge of one average washing cycle on one synthetic garment and they stated that it could release up to 1,900 particles from that one garment in one washing cycle. So if we then consider that our current washing machines aren't constructed to filter that out and then obviously that then goes into our grey water which historically and still in parts of the world and including South Australia ends up in our rivers and then in our oceans. There's obviously a huge opportunity that we can implement change there and reduce that high level of fibre pollution going into our oceans. Similarly, Nicola Forster identified a need for consumers and businesses to work together to develop more intentional practices around manufacturing and consumption. I think we really need to look at As consumers, we need to only buy high quality material that will last and that won't shed microplastics. Even when we think about clothing and footwear, there hasn't been a lot of research, but you know, there is an increasing number of studies that show the construction and the type of materials that you use in clothing and footwear can have a dramatic impact on how many microplastics are released. So if we can have some more data around that, that will really help sustainable textile companies to develop more products and then consumers can make some really conscious decisions about supporting these companies. What these examples are illustrative of is that when we understand where plastics originate from, we have a better chance of adequately addressing the problem. One organisation that has adopted this approach is Ocean Watch Australia. We heard from Projects Officer Siobhan Trellfall about the work being done by the organisation and their source reduction initiatives. Ocean Watch Australia is a national profit environmental company. So we're the national marine NRM, NRM meaning natural resource management. And we work with the seafood industry and the community to ensure Australia's marine environment is healthy, productive, valued and used in a responsible way. So we work on a variety of projects in the marine and coastal environment that could be anything from marine debris to industry best practice in the seafood industry to habitat restoration, communities of practice, so oh bushfire recovery even. So we work, we work across a, a large kind of sector. At Ocean Watch, we've recently worked on the development of some source reduction plans, and that basically refers to a plan that looks at a type of marine debris source. Whether you identify that there's a lot of plastic bottles in the environment or a lot of bait bags, you can then go and identify the source 
of that debris and try and find alternatives or try and mitigate the source of that. So we were contacted by the Tangaroa Blue Foundation who have the Australian Marine Debris Initiative database. So they do a lot of cleanups around Australia and they identified that bait bags were a big source of marine debris that they were collecting. So they asked Ocean Watch to have a look into that and trial some alternatives. So we trialed five or six different alternatives to bait bags, to the plastic bait bags. So we had cold water soluble packaging, hot water soluble packaging, recyclable packaging, home compostable packaging, sugar cane trays, and a cardboard box. And so we looked at a variety of different bait types and how... I guess the quality of of those bait types when they were held in these alternatives, we trialed them in freezer conditions and then also trialed the packaging types in the marine environment to see how they broke down. We did find that whilst cold water soluble is such a fantastic idea, it's really, really hard to package bait in that because, I mean, bait's wet. (laughs) And freezers are pretty wet. So that breaks down pretty quickly and not great for storage because you still want for a, a business to take on an alternative, you want it to be as good as it can be, or if not as good as, as the plastic material that they currently use. We also looked at, yeah, so hot water soluble, which was which was pretty good across the bait types. And then things like cardboard and, and sugar cane trays, because they're not completely sealed, you have a problem with freezer burn. So the quality just doesn't tend to last as long for all of the bait types, but yeah, it does differ. One of the other concerns identified by Ocean Watch is benthic litter. Siobhan explained... Ocean Watch has recently been looking into benthic litter in estuaries. And so benthic litter refers to litter that has settled on the seafloor or the estuary floor. And this type of litter often goes unnoticed because we don't see it unless you're diving. You're not going to see the litter that's that's on the, the ocean floor. You see everything that's floating or on the shoreline. And there's particular types of litter that are more likely to sink. In fact, I think it's something like 70% of marine debris ends up on the seafloor. So it's a huge amount that's ending up down there that we might not be capturing. We we might not realise that it's a problem. And so at Ocean Watch, we realised that there's not really that much research into benthic litter. And maybe we're missing key items that are contributing to marine debris on the seafloor. And it is important to understand what's going on down there and how it might be impacting our marine environment. So we looked at a few different methodologies to understand the types of litter on the estuary floor and to look at what's the best methodology to survey that environment and understand the problem. So we looked at diving, obviously is the most well-known option, but in places like Sydney Harbour or or hard-to-access areas for divers or unsafe areas for divers, sometimes it's it's not possible to dive. And so we wanted to have other options there. So we looked at ROVs, so remotely operated vehicles, which is a lot of fun. (laughs) 
And then we trialed some methods where we had like a sled underwater with a camera attached and filmed what was going on. And then we also used Paravane, which floats um, at a certain level in the water and dragged a camera along to capture what's going on on the seafloor. We developed a list of recommendations, but we found that ROVs are really, really useful for this. I went out into Sydney Harbour and did a few surveys of what was going on on the S3 floor. I mean, it really does differ across different areas of the harbour. One of the biggest issues I found was when there was a high sediment load. So when you have a lot of runoff or there's a lot of inflows into the estuary where you're looking at, the marine debris on the floor of the estuary just are covered so quickly. So I might go down there one day, I'll see litter and and the next day it's, you know, covered by a layer of mud. So it's really difficult to know what the problem is and how bad it is because you, you just can't see it. However, there were some areas where it was really easy to see how much litter was there and it was quite stark. I think I went along this 100 metre strip. It was near a sports oval and there was so much rubbish, just everything, you know, your classic masks, which are very common now to, you know, big cafe umbrellas and lots of bottles, bottle caps, you name it. It was there. Lots of clothing as well. Clothing, you know, typically sinks. So that was quite disheartening sometimes when you come across that. But it is great that we have this way now to understand what's going on there. And now we can start to collect that data and perhaps that will lead to something like a source reduction plan or the reduction of of that litter in some way. So we're hoping to incorporate survey and benthic litter into some of our other projects and get some, some good data on that. One of the problems that we identified in relation to benthic litter was that it can smother mangrove habitats, for instance. Mangroves are crucial, crucial habitats for the marine environment. They're so important for fish habitat, for breeding grounds, for nursery grounds, and for carbon sequestration and water filtration, you know, so they're really important. And if litter settles in those environments, it can start to degrade the mangroves there through smothering or just through damage of of their root systems. So that was one of the issues that we saw. Litter in general just can harm the aquatic habitats that exist on the seafloor, whether it be oyster reefs or rock habitats and animals become entangled. And I guess the biggest thing that we saw was that we don't know what's happening in the benthos because we don't see it. And so we need to understand the problem to understand how bad it is. It's like other marine debris. It can be ingestion by marine animals or it could be entanglement. Yeah, you name it. We find all sorts of different litter types and plastic types. The thing is, we're usually looking pretty locally within an estuary. So before it gets into the wider marine environment or the ocean. So a lot of the stuff that we're looking at, it will usually come from within that catchment. Some stuff that we find has been there for a long, long time. So some stuff's pretty old. So we do this thing every year with our tide to tip cleanups that we we run with the oyster industry that we identify the strangest item that we can find. So we have found one year an ice machine, like a very old ice machine. So you do find really strange things. We do have some of our estuaries that are quite remote. We don't really tend to find rubbish there, but when you do, it's quite 
I feel like it's quite shocking. You know, you're in the middle of nowhere in this beautiful, pristine habitat and there's a plastic bag. And you go, where did that come from? And, you know, like, yeah, it's just one in this estuary and, and in another estuary you might find like one ton of waste in one day. It's literally this out-of-the-way catchment and you go, how did this get here? That can be pretty disheartening. Ocean currents can basically force debris to go in all sorts of directions. And so it's really difficult sometimes to track where that litter has come from. And that's why we see often on pristine beaches, particularly, you know, in northern Australia, you get debris from various parts of, you know, the Asian continent. And these are pristine beaches that you think you'd go to and there'd be nothing. It shows you that it's a global problem and we need a global solution for it. As we have now established, plastics have a myriad of effects on Australia's unique environment. Janet Klein's study in the intertidal waters of South Australia recorded the impact of microplastics on the keystone species, the mussel. A keystone species is a species in the environment which has an integral role throughout their ecosystem. And in the mussel's case, it's a filter feeder. And so it plays a role in connecting organisms throughout the water column. And significantly also for a mussel, it's part of our own human food chain. And so we know from other literature that mussels have the capacity to filter microplastics out of the water. And they also have a clever little mechanism where they can reject some foreign particles but also that's not absolutely perfect. And so microplastic particles do or have been known in the lab to enter their digestive system and also at the smaller particle range to be absorbed through their gut wall and therefore be incorporated into the tissue of the muscle. There are really three mechanisms by which microplastics can affect a muscle And so if we've got an organism that plays quite a significant role in the intertidal marine ecosystem being affected by microplastics, then it obviously has an impact on the surrounding ecosystem. Study of microplastics in humans is really new, but if a muscle has microplastic and we eat the muscle, obviously we're eating the microplastic. I understand that microplastics can be excreted by humans, obviously, along with our waste product, but depending on the size of the microplastic, it's also been found it can cross the cell barrier and so be incorporated into our own tissue. The effects of that as yet are still to be determined. It's an emerging area of study in context to the effect on humans and very specific effects on the enormous or the vast ecosystems that are out there. There's quite a bit known on the muscle from laboratory studies uh, or microplastic have been found to cause an inflammation response, affect immune systems, growth, and what's called their energy bank. Obviously, if they're incorporating a foreign particle as a food, that can give the message to the muscle that they've eaten something nutritious, but obviously there's no nutrition associated with a plastic to a muscle so they're not getting the energy that they quite think they're consuming so that has an effect on growth reproduction. The risks to biodiversity and the potential for plastics to enter the human food chain were also identified in Nicola Forster's soil study. Most of the research into microplastic impacts it's all happening in labs at the moment and in incubator studies and this is mainly because trying to handle microplastics is incredibly difficult. So it needs to be in a fairly controlled environment where you can use fine metal tweezers and work precisely. 
But, you know, this, this growing body of research is really showing that microplastics can have quite severe impacts on soil organisms and particularly in terms of oxidative stress, impacts on the immune system and reproductive systems. And this can then lead to increased mortality or reduced reproductive capacity. And interestingly, most of the research has been done at acute levels and for short periods of time. But there's some, some new research coming in that's showing that chronic exposure to microplastics, even at lower levels, it will actually have uh, severe impacts on the next generation as well, which is really interesting and quite scary. Other research is showing that microplastics can also impact the soil structure. They can leach a range of chemicals into the environment. They can impact microbial communities and enzyme activity. And then that impacts nutrient cycling and soil respiration and you know, a range of other soil properties and ecosystem functioning. And you know, all of these impacts can vary quite dramatically depending on the size and the shape and the type of microplastic. Encouragingly, a study conducted by CSIRO researchers earlier this year reported a 30% average decrease in litter on a number of Australian beaches over a period of six years. The study directly attributed the decrease in litter to the efforts of local governments in encouraging environmental stewardship of their areas. The success of local government management is a hugely encouraging signifier that ground-level interventions and individual communities are capable of enacting significant change for the better. Siobhan from Oceanwatch noted a positive shift in the willingness of industries and of local communities to adjust their behaviours. When Oceanwatch started back in 1989, the problems in the marine environment were vastly different to what they are today and the culture around the environment was very different. Today, we have a lot more problems, but people are far more informed about them. And I see that people are really interested in getting involved and doing their bit for the environment, which which is really great when when you're trying to get people engaged in environmental projects. The issue is that there is so many environmental problems now compared to when we started. And it's sometimes it's like, where do I start? And the issue is that funding is pretty competitive these days. So, you know, you can only work on what you're funded for, what you have the capacity to do. And that's where I guess volunteers are really helpful. We work on what we can and we engage with the community where we can. There's definitely a lot of knowledge now about the current environmental impacts that we're seeing, particularly recently where we've been working on bushfire recovery because that was so widespread. A lot of people know about it and a lot of people are concerned about that. And then issues related to flooding um, with a lot of debris going into the ocean and into the river systems. A lot of people are pretty educated about that. But yeah, the biggest issue in, in dealing with these things is capacity. And whilst there's a lot of people that are interested in it, it's difficult when you don't have the full capacity to actually deal with those issues. When I look at all of the problems that face the environment, sometimes, sometimes you can get overwhelmed. And sometimes it can feel like it's just like a deeper and deeper hole that you'll never get out of. But getting to work 
on solutions and on environmental restoration and various other projects, you get to see that there are so many people that really, really care and really want to make a difference. And there's some amazing projects out there if you look. We have oyster farmers across New South Wales and Australia take to their local estuaries within two weeks in February and we do a massive cleanup in each of the estuaries. We have lots of other groups that get involved in the different estuaries, whether it would be community or land services or DPI. We get a lot of different groups involved. So it's a great initiative. It's horrible to see how much waste we pull out, but it's great to see the industry come together and, and pull out that waste. And the thing The thing that I saw was that, you know, oyster farmers are in the estuary every day and they see rubbish in their estuary and estuary health is crucial for their livelihoods. So they want it to be clean. And so they'll pick up waste. And so this was a way of escalating the effort and combining forces to to do this huge cleanup and have this huge impact. And so now every year we come back and the event grows some more, we have more community involved and we have a really big cleanup. And for me, it's been fantastic to see how many people care about the environment, how many people are willing to come out and give up their time to clean up. When you meet these people and you hear their stories, you go, wow, you know, we can do this. We can all work together and, and we can find a solution. And I feel really positive that that the combined efforts of all these different people that are working for the good of the environment will have a positive and lasting impact. Janet Klein also believes that there are some very achievable ways of managing plastic pollution through community and individual action. A really important way to support the environment and support community to make a difference is is regulatory change. And here in South Australia, the beginning of last year, I believe we introduced a ban on single-use plastics that included plastic straws, plastic cutlery. And we're reviewing the uh, use of takeaway coffee cups. And so I understand New South Wales is also introducing similar bans and with the introduction of the ban on single-use plastic bags in supermarkets, it will make a critical difference because it alerts consumers such as myself that there are other ways to shop, there are ways in which we can reuse what we have and just to be conscious of the cycle of every product that passes through our house or office. I'm eternally hopeful. I think what we see as problems today, and we have a a knowledge that we've never had before because of our method of communication being truly global and and instant, it offers opportunities for change and it offers opportunities to find solutions and make a difference. I understand how these large problems that are experienced on a global level are very overwhelming or can be overwhelming. But actually, if we break them down and realize we can make a difference in our own local and individual way and participate in the accumulative action, make a difference. And there are organizations out there working on the broader community and global level also, so we can support them and together we all will make a difference. One of the organizations which you can support is Ocean Watch Australia. If you're interested in getting involved, visit the Ocean Watch Australia webpage to learn how to volunteer. It's getting to a point where people realise that we need the environment to be healthy if we want to persist on this earth. It's crucial. I think that more and more people have identified that there's a real issue and are really calling for a strong change in how we do things.
Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for episode three, where we'll be exploring the effect of plastic on human health.